One of the uh, sections of that petition is titled New York PD's Failure to Investigate the Murder of Kathy. We feel like NYPD failed to investigate Kathy's disappearance. If this wasn't such a serious topic, I would laugh. Did Gilbert and Ajami repeatedly tell you from the beginning of your investigation, Detective Strzok, Bob Durst killed her. He killed her in Westchester. She never got on the train. Did Gilberta tell you that? She may have. So, Detective, you had a task force of approximately 10 detectives working on this case, and you're telling me that you believe it would have been a waste of time to simply have a detective go to those train employees, go to that train, pass her picture around and find out, hey, did anyone see her on the train that night? It's your position, that would have been a waste of time and not perfect. I'm not saying it would be a waste of time. I think that sounds very callous, but at the time, it did not seem necessary. During your investigation, did you ever find any evidence that anyone other than her husband, Robert Durst, was responsible for her disappearance and death? No. Did you, during your investigation in this case, back in 1982, have sexual relations with a witness, an individual who was involved in this case? Yes. And detective, without going into the person's name, I want you to describe what happened. Was I, I don't know how many times it's gone. I'm angry right now. And I guess you can tell that by my tone of voice. But if he's asked those questions once, he's asked them at least 15 times. And I objected. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In the coming weeks, we look forward to beginning our deep dive into aspects of Robert Durst's life that even avid followers of this case may not know. In our oral history of Durst's life, we'll hear from Robert Durst in his own words, from both trial testimony and his own writings, as read by actor David Kelsey. Look out for this new series beginning next week. However, with bombshell testimony in court this week, we're dedicating this episode to presenting the latest updates from the trial of Robert Durst. Before we get into this week's events, I would like to bring in my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, to discuss the final chapter in our series on the life of Susan Berman, the woman whom Durst is charged with murdering. Brittany, what stuck out to you in that last episode on Berman? By all accounts, it sounds like Susan Berman had a complicated relationship with even her closest friends. And one thing that really stood out to me was that while she didn't have the easiest time with adults, it sounds like she was great with kids. Yeah, you're right. She did seem to have a maternal relationship to her friend's kids. Yeah, there was that that sweet anecdote about Susan accompanying Nick Chavin's young daughter on a cross-country flight. And then there's Paul Kaufman's adult children. You know, I wonder if she had an easier time connecting with young people because it, it sounds like the happiest time in her life was her childhood. Yeah. And perhaps she was so trusting of Durst because he reminded her of her father. Well, we'll see and hear more about Susan as presented by the lawyers in this case. But for now, we're going to delve into the events from last week. And that's coming right up after the break. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. While the defense and prosecution share very little common ground in this case, there is one point upon which both sides seem to agree. The question of Robert Durst's guilt in the murder of Susan Berman hinges upon whether or not he was responsible for the disappearance of his wife, Kathy, in 1982. For most of the last week, the jury heard from one witness who is particularly familiar with this chapter in Robert Durst's story. The court played for the jury the testimony of the lead detective in the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance, a Manhattan police detective named Michael Strzok. The eight-plus hours of video and audio was recorded in November of 2017 during four grueling days of questioning. Detective Strzok was originally called by the defense in an attempt to demonstrate that he had conducted a reasonable investigation based on the information available to him at the time and was unable to come up with sufficient evidence to charge Robert Durst with a crime. Dick DeGuerin asked Detective Strzok to reflect on his performance in this case. A quick disclaimer, the recording of these proceedings is riddled with sounds of clacking and coughing from within the courtroom, and some things may be hard to hear. We have done our best to clean up the sound and to repeat or paraphrase those statements that are particularly difficult to understand. So I want to ask you, did you do your best to solve this mystery back in 81, 82, and 83? Absolutely. From my professional and personal, I, I feel like we did what, whatever we could with what we were presented with, with what, um, what direction we had. Um, I had held this case important where I took a lot of it home with me that I had made copies of, because I knew that if it wasn't solved over the years, hopefully it would remain a cold case and then somebody would resurrect it along the way. Um, but I'm, I am professionally comfortable with what we had done at the time uh, before the case got really cold, yeah. DeGuerin tried to inoculate Strzok against criticism of his investigation by presenting several articles written in the years following the original investigation when Janine Pirro reopened the case. One of the uh, sections of that petition is titled New York PD's Failure to Investigate the Murder of Kathy feel like NYPD failed to investigate Kathy's disappearance? And if this wasn't such a serious topic, I would laugh. The investigation was either unethical, corrupt, or incompetent, maybe all three. Second, quote, either a real cop investigated a real crime and blew it, or someone above him pulled the plug on it and didn't care that a real woman was gone. It's ridiculous. They, uh, they insult you, don't they? It appears to be that, yes. You think that's fair? Do you walk in my shoes? Don't spit in my face. 
Strzok's defense of his investigation seems to continually return to his assertion that there was no evidence that a crime had been committed. Gilberti and company, this is another quote, were providing the NYPD with hard evidence of Robert's suspicious activities in the aftermath of his wife's disappearance. They ignored it. The question is why? Your comment? What hard evidence? What crime scene? What dead body? The prosecution used its cross-examination of Detective Strzok to demonstrate that Strzok botched the investigation, failing to follow up on evidence and failing to conduct interviews with a number of potential witnesses. In the course of their questioning, the prosecution noted upwards of 20 mistakes made by Strzok during his inquiry into Kathy's disappearance, but they focused most of their attention on four key areas of Strzok's efforts on the case. First, they noted Strzok's failure to question Dr. Albert Cooperman, the dean of Albert Einstein College of Medicine, who purportedly received a phone call from Kathy Durst on the morning of February 1st, 1982, the day after she was last seen. Would you agree that it was critically important to ascertain specifically whether or not Dr. Cooperman recognized Kathy's voice? Yes. You would agree that if you didn't clarify it, it would have been a mistake, correct? Yes. As we reported earlier in the season, Dr. Cooperman testified that the only reason he believed the call came from Kathy was because the woman on the phone identified herself as such. In the second key area of their questioning, the prosecution focused on why Detective Strzok failed to treat Robert Durst as a suspect after figuring out that Durst had told him a number of lies when he reported Kathy missing to him five days after her disappearance. Specifically, Deputy DA John Lewin asked Strzok why he took Durst's word for it when Durst placed Kathy back in the city on the night of her disappearance after a number of Durst's other statements about that night proved to be lies. So, Detective, you knew, you spoke to a witness on February 9th, four days into your investigation, who absolutely was telling you Bob Durst never came over to have drinks with us like he told you on Sunday the 31st. You agree that's what you were told, correct? Correct. Detective, as an experienced homicide detective, given what you knew about this case, would you agree that was a big lie that you caught him on, correct? Yes, sir. Detective, at that point in time, did it make you say to yourself, you know what? I don't know if Kathy Durst ever made it out of Westchester County. Well, I don't know if that particular uh, interview would totally suggest that, but it certainly was an inconsistency. Um, inconsistency or lie? Let's call it a lie. Let's call it a lie. Given the fact that Strzok figured out that Robert Durst lied about his whereabouts both before and in the days following Kathy's disappearance, the prosecutor asked why Strzok never conducted a proper search of Durst's South Salem home. So would you agree, detective, that that house during the original investigation was never thoroughly searched and processed by you or your representatives from NYPD? Correct. 
That was struck, concurring in the prosecution's assessment that the search of the Durst home in South Salem was inadequate. More broadly, the prosecution elicited from Detective Struck a concession that he was aware of witnesses who had come forward, alerting him to the fact that Robert Durst might be a suspect. Most notably, Kathy's close friend, Gilberta Najami, who had made repeated calls to Struck and other investigators, telling them that Kathy suffered from domestic abuse and was afraid of her husband. Did Gilberta Najami repeatedly tell you from the beginning of your investigation, Detective Struck, Bob Durst killed her. He killed her in Westchester. She never got on the train. Did Gilberta tell you that? She may have. The third key area of inquiry by the prosecution was why Detective Strzok never tested Robert Durst's assertion regarding when and where Durst last saw his wife by questioning potential witnesses who took the same train that Durst said Kathy had taken on January 31st, 1982. So Detective, you had a task force of approximately 10 detectives working on this case, and you're telling me that you believe it would have been a waste of time to simply have a detective go to those train employees, go to that train, pass her picture around, and find out, hey, did anyone see her on the train that night? Your position, that would have been a waste of time and not pertinent. I'm not saying it would be a waste of time. I think that sounds very callous. But at the time, it did not seem necessary based on the fact that we believe we had her in the city. For much of the time that Detective Strzok faced cross-examination, he was defiant of the prosecution's suggestions that he had made mistakes in his investigation. Why can't you simply tell us, you know what, I made a mistake and I should have, even if I hadn't already searched the house, at that point in time, I should have had a team sent out to that house and had it taken apart. Sounds real good in hindsight. Sounds real good in hindsight. And yet, when questioned by the prosecution about the outcome of his investigation and the various lines of inquiry he pursued, this is how Detective Strzok responded. During your investigation, did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had voluntarily taken off and abandoned her life? No, sir. During your investigation, did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had killed herself? No, sir. Did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had overdosed on drugs? No. During your investigation, did you ever find any evidence that anyone other than her husband, Robert Durst, was responsible for her disappearance and death? No. The fourth and final area of the prosecution's inquiry into Strzok's failings in the case focused on the ethics of Strzok's behavior with witnesses and with evidence. During the investigation, the NYPD came into possession of a dossier from Ed Wright, a private investigator who had been hired by Nick Scopetta, Robert Durst's lawyer at the time. While Strzok denies receiving the materials from Ed Wright directly, he not only admits to reading the documents, but to saving them with his personal records. Now, at some point, did you come into possession of reports that uh, appeared to be written by Ed Wright regarding his work on the Durst case in 1982? Yes. Now, Detective, when you got these materials, you are trained and you understood, correct, that you are not legally allowed to be reviewing materials 
from a defense lawyer or an investigator under their employee. You understood that, correct? Correct. Detective, then, why, when you received them, did you go through them? Uh, I, I, my guess is everybody had read them even before I walked into the squad. Listen, isn't it true that when you reviewed those materials and you knew that they were coming from Mr. Durst's private investigator, that what you are legally obligated to do, ethically obligated to do, and procedurally obligated to do by the New York Police Department is to put those down, contact Mr. Scapetta or Mr. Wright, and tell them, you know what, I've come into possession of something I'm not supposed to have. You were aware of that, correct? It was not done. Well, that was my question. Listen, you knew that you were looking at something you weren't supposed to look at. I guess you could say that. Okay. And you did not contact at all Mr. Wright or Mr. Scapetta, is that correct? That's correct. If you're having difficulty hearing, Strzok is acknowledging that he was looking at something that he should not have been. Detective, did they wind up in the NYPD folder, or did they wind up in your personal files that you took with you when you retired? I believe they came with me. You would agree, Detective, there's no way that you could have written, I received these privileged materials which I'm not supposed to look at, and now I'm going to document that I received them. You knew you were doing something you weren't supposed to, and you took the stuff, and you took it home with you, correct? Apparently, yes. And in fact, Detective, you have later stated, correct, that you did that because you knew you were not allowed to use anything that came from Ed Wright in your investigation, correct? Well, I knew we couldn't use it, and we didn't use it, so at that point, it was just something from the folder. And isn't it true that the only reason that these documents came to light is that when you did your interviews with Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, that you gave them access to all of your personal files, correct? I did let them look at everything they wanted to look at in hope that they could help develop this case further, just like everybody else I spoke to. I want to be clear. In no way am I insinuating that you did not want to solve this case. But I want to go back. Isn't it true, Detective, that you did not realize that you were giving Jarecki and Smerling copies of materials that you weren't supposed to have? Probably a poor choice at the time, yes. Probably a poor choice at the time, yes. The prosecution then questioned Strzok about the ethics of receiving gifts from witnesses in a murder investigation. Would you agree that it would be improper for you to either solicit or accept concert tickets from the family of a suspected murder victim that you're investigating? Would you agree? The tickets that I did accept for Neil Diamond was told to me that they were free and then offered to me as such, that she did not pay for them. So it was just tickets that were common tickets that if I wanted to go and take somebody, I could. And I did accept them. So let me ask you this. One of my questions, Detective, is do you think that accepting tickets in that capacity, in that scenario, is in compliance 
with the standards that existed at the time for New York City police officers. I guess sitting here today, I wish I had not done it, uh, but it, it didn't seem to compromise anything at the time, and it was a gesture that was offered to me, and I took them. I'm going to ask again if you can please try to answer my question. Okay. And I'll, I'll read it if that's easier. Isn't it true, Detective, that there was a policy, even back in 1982, that you were not to be getting freebies, either given or solicited, from witnesses or victims in cases you were investigating? I think that would be fair to say. The prosecution then asked Strzok about his penchant for seeking payment for information related to his investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. You did a court TV documentary in January 10, 2002. Do you recall that? I guess. Did you get paid? I don't think so. You mentioned the word consideration in a contract that you signed. Does consideration mean money? Uh, it certainly could, yeah. You also, an A&E documentary in 2001, you did. Did you get paid for that? I don't know. Do you think it's appropriate, Detective, do you think it's professional to capitalize financially on a murder case that you never solved? I think it was appropriate to try to bring to light anything about this case so it could get solved. Was there anything, Detective, preventing you from bringing stuff to light without being financially compensated? I don't know if I was compensated. You have indicated that you're not sure if you took money in this case from different people. You recall that testimony, correct? Correct. But you can't say that you did it, correct? Correct. And you said originally I took a couple hundred dollars from directly smirling, but it turned out to be $800 a check made out to your wife, correct? Yeah. The final and perhaps most shocking area of the prosecution's inquiry into Strzok's ethical lapses came when Deputy DA Lewin asked Strzok to recount his sexual encounter with a witness in the case. Did you, during your investigation in this case, back in 1982, have sexual relations with a witness, an individual who was involved in this case. Yes. And detective, without going into the person's name, I want you to describe what happened. Uh, I had received a phone call and I was asked by, by one of these people that whether I would join them, uh, I believe the next day, to look at the premises uh, of where one of them had lived and to see if there was any relevance to the case. Uh, I was asked to come at the end of the day to accommodate their work schedule and mine. Um, I went there. Uh, upon entering the one, the individual that I had sex with told the other one I forget the exact words, don't you have something to do? She left, and after that, the person that I had sex with uh, initiated something that I went along with. Um, What was that? She initiated oral sex? Yes. And did you, at that point, did you stop her? No. All right, so did you have oral sex with her? 
Yes. Okay, please continue. Um, from that point, um, when I was nearing orgasm, I then said to her, are you okay with that? Or would you like to finish in a conventional way? Um, from that, we then went from the couch where I was seated and slid onto the floor. And then we had intercourse on the floor. Detective, in, in any way, was this anything other than a consensual encounter? No. Detective, you have talked about the professional way you handled this case. Would you agree that that kind of conduct was about as unprofessional as you can get? Yes. The defense seems stunned by the cumulative damage done to their case by this recorded testimony from a witness that they had called and which they had agreed by stipulation would be played for the jury. After the jury had left the courtroom, David Chesnoff appeared to be attempting some damage control when he asked the judge to instruct the jury as to how they should interpret this testimony. There are repeated statements of Mr. Lewin's vision of the facts in order to elicit answers. Yes, the, state, the questions of uh, the lawyers are not evidence. How often do I have to tell them that? I've told them that twice already. Well, Three it, times. The only reason I'm asking... something about how it's outrageously repetitious? I, that? I don't know how many times it's gone. I'm angry right now, and yeah. I guess you can tell that by my tone of voice. Yeah. But if he's asked those questions once, he's asked them at least 15 times. Right. And I objected. Well, it was cross-examination. He's perfectly, he's perfectly proper. There's nothing wrong perfectly, with it. Uh, uh, perfectly acceptable to repeat it that often, Judge? That, yes. That there was also right. a stipulation regarding the testimony, which counsel signed after reviewing. Yeah, I'm not I'm definitely. sorry you're angry. I mean, this witness is not good for the defense. Sure, yes. The only reason it comes up is this is a very artificial approach to a jury trial. Uh, and as a result, the asked and answered questions um, are repetitive, and it's not as though the witness isn't answering, it's just that Mr. Lewin doesn't always like the answer. I am not satisfied personally that he did answer the questions. We'll be back with our jury duty roundtable conversation right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To discuss these events, I'd like to bring back my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, and to welcome back reporter Charles Bagley, who's covering this trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, Brittany, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Charlie, the defense seemed really unnerved by the way Strzok's testimony played for the jury. You attended the original set of hearings where this testimony was recorded and reported on it for the New York Times. What did you make of the way it played in court this time around? Well, just like the defense lawyers, I was in the courtroom in 2017, and the testimony by Detective Strzok went on for hours and hours. And uh, there were constant interruptions. 
So you didn't get the full impression, the, the full impact of the dismantling of this investigation that was done by the prosecution. But at eight hours plus, you got a more refined version without the interruptions. So you got the full impact. Well, did you do this, detective? No. Did you do that, detective? No. Well, you begin to start thinking, why didn't he do these things? They seem so obvious. And I I think it was just that way for the defense. And they were freaking out. Yeah. So tell me, what did you make of the defense team's response to the way it played? Well, I thought it was amusing because the judge had to keep reminding them, you had agreed to this. You saw the transcript. Presumably you, you heard the material. You signed off. How could you come back now and say, uh, do over? So he wasn't having any of it. Brittany, what for you was the most notable aspect of Strzok's testimony? Well, on the one hand, his testimony about sleeping with a witness was hands down the most shocking moment. You know, clearly it was sensational and I can only imagine must have stunned the jury. But I think aside from that, the thing that really stuck out to me was really what Charlie said, you know, the way that he defended his investigation. I came into the last week looking forward to hearing more about what happened during the original investigation because some people posit that it was shut down by powerful people or possibly through the Durst family's political connections. And I guess that could still be possible. But in general, he came across as completely incompetent. There were, of course, times that Lewin backed him into a corner and he had to admit that he could have done more or should have done something differently. But Overall, his unwillingness to reflect and admit to making just a ton of mistakes, specifically when it comes to searching the South Salem house, was remarkable. And I think the defense thought so, too. I'm I'm really curious to see how they bounce back from this. Yeah. And the one other thing that was really shocking and sort of gets overshadowed by the fact that he slept with a witness is the fact that he had notes from Robert Durst's lawyer's investigator stuff that is clearly privileged. And as a detective, you know that. And not only did he not turn them back over to Robert Durst's lawyer, he kept them and he kept them for his own personal use. That was staggering. Yeah, that was wild. And then the fact that they only came to light because you just handed them over to Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling is kind of hilarious. Unbelievable. Charlie, any final thoughts on Detective Strzok? You know, I, I, he was in a, a tricky position here because he was called to the stand by the defense because the defense wanted to show, using him, that there had been a fine investigation back in 1982. And I think it ultimately it backfired on them. And that's going to have a, a tough effect on them because the prosecution is saying everything ties back to the murder of Kathy Durst. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much to both of you for sharing your thoughts about this incredible witness testimony. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll continue to bring you the latest updates from the trial. And next week, we'll present our first installment in our deep dive into Robert Durst's life before the trial, examining moments and relationships that even those who've been following this case avidly may not know. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.